Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Brian Karstens. Brian is a professor in the Department of Evolution, Ecology, and Organismal Biology and head of the Tetrapod Division at the Museum of Biological Diversity at The Ohio State University. Brian, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. It's great to have an opportunity to chat with you. I'd love for you to start by really decoding your your title. It's a mouthful. Uh, Not all of that. (laughs) I mean, so basically, I am a biologist. And so that would be like the short Cliff Notes version. And Uh um, the kind of biology that we do in my research lab is basically trying to use genetic and other sources of data to understand basically how species are formed and what factors influence biodiversity on the planet. And so, you know, my affiliations are basically who controls me professionally. (laughs) And how did you come to use machine learning as a tool to help you study biology? Yeah. So I think it started because, you know, like a lot of biologists, I was trained in a certain kind of statistics, you know? And so we, when I say we, I'm really talking about my research lab, which has a whole bunch of, of scientists who work with me. But, you know, we started looking at statistical relationships between different biological variables. And the challenge that you run into really quickly is that all these variables are correlated because all biological species are related to one another to some extent, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and you have this correlation that's caused by the relatedness as well as other correlations that are caused by the environmental conditions or whatever. And you know, a regression is fine or something like that, but you quickly lose the ability to really say anything because everything's related to everything to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, And so many of the questions that we have are basically trying to understand why certain processes have happened. And when we started thinking about these questions in terms of can we predict, you know, why this has happened, that allowed us to really bring a lot more data into answering the question, you know, and and machine learning is a tool for doing that. Awesome. Awesome. You know, in exploring your work in biodiversity, maybe a good place to start is, you know, why that's important and why we want to apply these tools to understanding biodiversity. Well, so I think there's two ways you can answer that. When you hear this question in the media, it often gets answered in an economic sense, you know, and people will say something like, well, biodiversity is important because we can get all this value from different species of plants or animals, you know, and so that's fine and they're not wrong. I think it's intrinsically important because we share this planet with millions of other species and human activity impacts all of these species to some extent. And the the tragic thing is that we currently know that many of these species are going extinct but we don't even have a good understanding of how many species are present or what the attributes of these species are. And so we are facing a a crisis where different species who have been evolving for millions and millions of years are going extinct without us really understanding anything about them. And so biologists are trying to use every tool at our disposal to do the best that we can to document life on the planet today because we know that it's all very threatened. 
Uh, it's interesting to hear you put it like that. We often hear in the media infrequent announcements about scientists have discovered, uh, you know, this new species or that new species like the biodiversity on the planet is pretty well understood. And it's a rare event when we find something new. It sounds like that's not the case. No, it's it's not the case. Um, so biologists who work in, in the science of taxonomy, which is discovering and describing species, estimate that we have described something between 1% and 10% of the species on the planet. What? <laughs> I know, it's insane, right? This, this seems absolutely nuts. And, and so when you talk, you know, I, I love teaching undergraduates. And when you start teaching undergraduates and you talk about discovering species, what people immediately think is we're going to go into some jungle and we're going to like go to the very end of the jungle, you know, and then turn left. And when we turn left, we're going to see this thing that no one's ever seen before. Yeah. Right. And it sometimes happens like that. And when it does, it's a cool story. But in reality, species are discovered by taxonomists who have a series of specimens, you know, and they know that it's some kind of bat and, and they can probably put it into a, a genus, which is a, a taxonomic grouping. But they start realizing that this thing that they're calling a single species is actually not one species and mm -hmm. it has very different groups within it. Mm -hmm. And so most species today are discovered in the genetics lab or they're discovered in museums or they're discovered in herbaria because we have some collections and people, when they invest the time into digging more deeply into these collections, begin to recognize that what they thought was a single species is actually multiple species. Got it. And in some ways, this is where the machine learning, the predictive modeling, these tools that we can use are really important. And we actually have one of the, the big research projects in my lab right now is trying to make a predictive model for how many undescribed species are present in the group of animals that we belong to, class mammalia. Nice. And so just to wrap that up, sounds like, you know, if we understand on the order of, you know, single digit percentage of the biodiversity on a planet within the remaining larger percentage, much larger percentage, there is some subset of things that we've never seen and never thought about. And, you know, they're just beyond the left turn somewhere in a jungle. But maybe the larger percentage are, are things that we know about but have miscategorized. Is that what you're... Um, would you say larger or smaller, or would you care to... Well, I, I think there's two examples that are really different that'll help us understand how these estimates are formed, mm -hmm. right? And so the 1% to 10%, that's obviously saying that we understand a small fraction of the diversity. Yeah. Presumably the confidence intervals on that are pretty large, you know, because we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. But for example, if you talk to people who do parasitology, what they'll tell you, so this is a study of parasites, is that we know there's a huge number of species of insects, right? Mm -hmm. And each insect species is likely to have several species of mites associated with it. So these are small mites that are parasitic just to a particular kind of insect. Mm -hmm. And each of those insect species is also likely to have a couple of species of nematodes, these small worms that are parasitic just to the species of insect. And so if we think that we only know and have described, you know, 10% of the insects on the planet, Got it. then by extrapolation, there's this huge number of mites and nematodes where no one's ever looked for them because no one's ever known which insect species would look for it. So, yeah. so that's yeah. part of that. There's just, we know that we're ignorant because of experience where 
parasitologists and people who work on mites and all of these specialists have gone to look at well-known insects and say, yeah, these are like new species of mites on this one species of fruit fly or something. Yeah. So the other example is kind of at the opposite end of that. And that's where we're working. We're working in, in class mammalia because we are mammals, humans are mammals. And because mammals are so important economically, we know more about mammals mm -hmm. relative to many other groups of plants and animals. Even in class mammalia, our predictive modeling suggests that as many as one-third of the described species of mammals are actually composed of multiple species where we just haven't fully described the diversity. Got and it. so by extrapolation, if it's that bad in mammals where people have been working really diligently for 200 years trying to figure out the diversity, you know, in some group of termites or beetles or, you know, some small group of plants, you know, these things are probably also true. Got and it. so the basic argument that my lab is trying to make to our colleagues is that we should try to understand where the patterns of unknown species are. And we can do that by using predictive modeling. Got and it. so the fun thing about our results from the predictive modeling is that many of the variables that have high importance when we do like a random forest analysis, and these are variables that we know are giving us a lot of information, are variables that suggest that taxonomists know where they should be looking. And so the problem isn't caused by some sort of deficiency on the part of how we're doing the species discovery and description as much as just not enough people doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, What's an example of one of the results uh, or projects that has come out of your lab? So I think one really successful application of, of machine learning that's come out of our lab um, was published a couple of years ago. And it was a study that looked at whether or not we could make a prediction about species and their conservation risk without having really any in-depth investigation. And so what we did is we looked at all plants because plants are really important to any ecosystem, any terrestrial ecosystem on the planet. And of the plants, only a small portion of them had actually been thoroughly investigated where people had gone and tried to make an assessment about whether they were stable, whether they were declining or threatened or endangered. And the reason for that is just resources. It takes a lot of time and money to hire a bunch of botanists to go make these assessments. Mm -hmm. So we built a predictive model using a bunch of trait data. This is information about the species and things like the shape and the reproductive life history characteristics of these plants. And then also environmental and geographic data. And we're able to build a pretty accurate, I think it was like 85% predictive accuracy model, letting us identify species that were likely at conservation risk that hadn't been assessed. And so the hope with this kind of modeling, and it's now been done by other groups of scientists and groups like birds and bats, but the hope with this kind of predictive modeling, it just allows us to target our resources towards a species that hasn't been investigated, but where there's reason to think that we probably should be investigating it. And, you know, in that way, hopefully it can provide some, you know, strategic use of the very limited resources that people who work in conservation have to deal with. Got it. In a case like the one that you just described, you know, has the data set already been collected and kind of sitting there and waiting for groups like yours to do interesting things? Or do you have to build that and curate it from scratch? It's a mix of the two, honestly. So. Mm -hmm. Over the last decade, the National Science Foundation and other funding agencies have put a lot of resources into digitizing natural history collections. 
And so there are millions and millions of specimens in museum and herbaria across the world. And when I was, you know, so I'm old, right? I've got, you know, the old professor thing going on. But when I was a grad student um, in the 20th century, you had to physically go to museums. You know, if I wanted to work on specimens, I would buy a plane ticket and get a hotel room or stay with friends or whatever. And I'd spend a couple of weeks at the American Museum and a couple of weeks at the Smithsonian. And I'd go as many places as I could afford to go um, to look at all the specimens. And I had to see them and interact with them physically. Over the last two decades, we've been digitizing more and more information from these collections. And this has allowed these big data sets to be put together where we're pulling information from different museums, different aggregators of museum data, and then other types of, of databases as well. And so none of the databases and, and data collections that we've analyzed have been there waiting for us, but it's also not the case that we're going and measuring everything ourselves because that would take too long, right? It wouldn't be possible. Got it, got it. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the modeling techniques that you apply in a case like that. Yeah, I mean, most of the time we're using pretty straightforward random forest analysis. Okay. Um, occasionally we do some neural network analysis. I guess I'm very opinionated. I like the random forest approach better because it allows us to tease apart how the variables are contributing to the end and the predictive result. A lot of times, the things that we use neural networks for are more often uh, situations where we're not as interested in the variables themselves as we are in the answer. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, we do model using neural networks to try to understand where species boundaries are. You know, so this is a case where we have lots of individuals that are closely related to one another, and we're trying to actually separate them into groups that correspond to the different species that are present. So in that case, the variables themselves don't matter as much as the outcome. And generally in those cases, what we found is that the neural networks perform really well. The random forest also performs really well. Mm -hmm. In cases like the example we mentioned, I mentioned earlier, where we were trying to understand the plant conservation risk, there, we really wanted to know which variables were important because these are things that we care about as biologists. And so in that case, we built a big random forest model. And do you generally find that it's straightforward to apply random forest to the data sets that you collect or are there tricks that you have to apply or, or areas that tend to cause you problems? That's absolutely not straightforward. Um, but that's in part due to the nature of the data themselves. And one of the discussion points that we often have is we first get together and compile a list of every piece of data that we think we could acquire and that we could possibly use in application to the problem that we're looking into. Mm -hmm. And the set that contains all possible data is, of course, much bigger than the set of data that we actually end up analyzing. Um, and then the reason for that is we have incomplete data for a lot of the questions that we want to answer. You know, if we're looking at building a model for all mammal species, you know, there's something like 5,400 described species of mammals currently. And the data sets have a lot of absent information, you know, because no one knows exactly what the average body size is for some small group of marsupials from South America, for example, or we have values that are reported for two specimen and, you know, we're trying to compare that in a species that's relatively understudied to one where we have hundreds of specimens. So obviously we know more and have better values for that case. So what we end up doing a lot is sort of curating these data sets, 
deciding which kinds of data imputation approaches we can use and trying to build the most complete data that we can without biasing the result in some way. You know, and so that involves a lot of trial and error and a lot of exploration before we get started. Do you have a uh, kind of standard rules of thumb that apply to your data sets in terms of data imputation? Like when are you dropping? When are you, you know, estimating? Yeah. So a lot of the predictive models we've built have had unequal class representation for the different classes. And, mm-hmm. and we know in those cases, it can be challenging to use random forest. And so mm-hmm. what we try to do is base our guidelines on imputation will work well in some cases, but we don't want to get so imbalanced that we don't have a lot of response variables in a certain class. And so the other challenge with biological data is that imputation needs to be guided by the evolutionary relationships of the animals. And so if we're thinking about body size and mammals, as an example, and and we're we're measuring mammals to the gram, Mm -hmm. you know, the average value is going to be not necessarily the best way to do the imputation because if we're looking okay. just in a clade of bats, the average mammal body size is not relevant to an average group of bats. So we want to guide that imputation by the phylogenetic relationships that these animals have. Mm-hmm. Um, that works fine for body mass, but many of the traits are not necessarily correlated with the phylogeny themselves. And so there are a, a famous example in mammals is, is reproductive characteristics. In certain groups, the life history traits that are associated with reproduction are very fixed. And in other groups, they're all over the map and they evolve and change rapidly. And so when you do the imputation, you have to apply your knowledge of how these things have evolved and try to do it in a way that doesn't lead to weird results. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in some cases, it makes more sense just to drop the data that you don't have because I think the imputation part of it would, you know that you would be misled by it based on how you know, historically uh, diverse those attributes in a particular group are. Okay. So, and what I, I mean, I, I think what my students and my, my staff scientists and I are always talking about is, you know, what do we think we know? How can we get as much data as we can without getting results that seem obviously wrong or misleading? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's always a balancing act. And we end up spending far more time getting our data compiled than we do actually analyzing it. Yeah. Yeah. You've talked about, you know, primarily attribute types of data. Do you ever work with image data or like DNA sequences or or those kinds of things? Well, so the DNA sequences, absolutely. Um, You know, genetic data are extraordinarily useful to a wide range of the biological sciences, but particularly work that's involved with biodiversity. Mm-hmm. And we, we use those data in a couple of different ways, but one of them is to just, as, as a proxy for evolutionary distance between the different samples that we have, we also, you know, so depending on, on what level we're looking at, we might use those as, as a, a way to make a phylogeny for how we're modeling the relatedness of the different species. But genetic data are, are really important. Image data are a little more challenging at this point, although there's some big initiatives that people are working on to extract information from those images. And so one of the things that's happening in museums and herbaria across the world is there's big image capture projects going on. And so at big museums like the Smithsonian, 
They now have rooms that are set up basically like a conveyor belt with a camera and they load specimens on one end and it goes down this conveyor belt and they take pictures from a bunch of different angles and then they take them off and put them back in the collection on the other end. And they're trying to digitize, you know, the millions and millions of collections that they have. Our little museum at Ohio State doesn't have anything this exciting, (laughs) but we still do some digitization of images more often in small scale studies that form like the dissertation research for a student or something along those lines. But the idea eventually is that the sum total of a bunch of small projects will then be useful for much bigger analyses. Got it. Uh, What are some other examples of projects that you've worked on? So one of the first we did machine learning with actually involves genetic data. And in biology, we know that you can look within species and look at the pattern of genetic differentiation across individuals. And there's several different forces that could lead you to find some pattern to how that genetic variation exists across the the landscape. So one of these is just geographic distance, right? If you have two individuals that are physically close to one another, it's more likely that they're closer related than two individuals that are not physically close to one another. And so in biology, we say that genetic diversity is often structured by the geographic distance. Another common force that leads to the genetic structure is the environment. And so it might be the case that the environmental conditions are going to influence the genetics of a population because they're evolving and parts of the population are evolving in one environment and other parts are evolving in a different environment. And so in those cases, we say that individual species are structured by their environment rather than the geographic distance. So the reason that this matters is that before you can have new species form, you have to have some sort of genetic structure to the species as a whole that is potentially evolving into new species. And so with that background, what my uh, colleague Tara Pelletier and I did is we wanted to understand what types of factors influence whether or not a species had genetic structure by the geography or by the environment. And so we did a big predictive modeling exercise, and I think we included about 10,000 species where we could get genetic data that were georeferenced so that we knew exactly where on the planet those specimens came from. And what we found out is that there were a lot of species that had evident geographic structure and a lot that had environmental structure, but species that were more likely to be structured by the geography tended to have really large ranges and tended to be located fairly far from the equator. Whereas species that were structured by the environment were more likely species that had ranges that had dramatic differences in environmental conditions across the range. And so the higher the variance in the various environmental conditions, the more likely it was that they were structured by the environment. And so this was a really top-level view, right? And it's, I think, uh, the type of insight that you gain is that you then have these general trends and these general patterns that can be investigated on a more localized scale. And so biologists read a paper like that and say, okay, well, if this is true, I should expect to see that pattern in these species that haven't been investigated. And then they use it as a basis for new research, which is, you know, the thing I like about science personally is that it's self-reinforcing. And when you do something, people read that or hear about it or hear you give a talk, and then they get inspired to do something slightly different. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. 
Do you apply causal modeling techniques or graphical models? Have you ever looked into the application of those to some of the problems that you're looking at? You know, we haven't, or at least I haven't. My students and the people that work in my lab often are doing stuff I don't know about because... (laughs) You know, they do more actual science than I do. I tend to talk about science more than I do science these days. So what are some examples of of this kind of causal modeling or graphical modeling? Uh, Well, there's, I think some of the things that you said that prompted the question is where the causal modeling excels is allowing you to, to kind of predict the causes of some of the, uh, what you're seeing in your, in your data. So you made some comments about, how you are seeing, you know, you kind of making assumptions about the generating process of your data and some of the differences in the real world that are causing your data to take on different forms. And causal modeling allows you to kind of capture that and to kind of bring that into your modeling process. And then when you see data, kind of deduce what are some of the causes that created that data. Well, yeah, we're not, to my knowledge, doing that. And it definitely sounds like something that that we should be doing. Yeah, and I... I'm not the expert on that. Uh, I've, I've talked to, to folks that have expertise there and I'd be happy to connect you or if someone's listening to this and wants to explore it further, maybe some interesting connections to be made. Yeah, no, absolutely. It sounds like it. I think it's amazing that we're sort of entering this, you know, era of big data in biology. Um, yeah. And one of the challenges is that we're biologists, right? And, you know, I know a lot about biology, but probably less than anyone who's listening to this about machine learning and all the the techniques that are out there and being developed right now. And so I think it definitely reinforces all of the initiatives that people have had for multidisciplinary science and collaborative science and these types of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's your general take on the extent to which machine learning is being taken advantage of within biology? I think in the last five years, it's become much more common, although it's still, it seems like every week I read a paper and people are doing things where I look at what they're doing and I think to myself, you really should have used, you know, a predictive model here, or you really, you know, should have used one of these techniques and they're not, they're still, you know, showing four or five regressions in a a figure where they regress variable A against variable B and then variable A against variable C and then variable B against variable C. And it's like, okay, you know, but it's definitely more common now than it used to be. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed is that in the last five years, the papers that have come out of my lab that have used the predictive modeling and the machine learning approaches are actually being cited more than the papers that haven't. And so that leads me to think that this is something that's growing in the field. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if citations are a judge of what people are interested in, and I think in part they are, then that's an indication that people are interested in this in biology. And and I would guess there would be really interesting applications that will happen in the next several years. And what's your sense for the, you know, what keeps machine learning from being used more frequently in biology? Is it awareness? Is it, you know, data? Is it the complexity of the, of the application itself? So if I had to guess, and this is just a guess, and, you know, I'm usually wrong when I make guesses, but, you know, in the biological sciences, the way that we train scientists is to have a bunch of undergraduate and graduate students work in the lab of, a, of someone who's a professor at a big university. And so in those situations, it's really common for 
people to defer far too much to the professor and his or her viewpoints on things. And the challenge for someone like me who's in this role where you're leading a research group is to be able to admit all the time that you don't know everything, right? And to push your students and the people that work with you to do things better than you know how to do them. And I'm good at that because I think I just have the personality where I have a hard time like even pretending that I know everything, you know, and that's something that (laughs) for whatever reason, it's, it's just kind of how I'm made. But my students and postdocs historically have been amazingly good at not believing any of the bullshit that I tell them, you know, (laughs) and trying to do things for themselves. And, you know, we, we have a great collaborative environment in my lab and I've tried to foster that to the extent where our entry into machine learning really got started as part of a, so so it's kind of a long story, but I think it, it serves the point. I did my PhD with a guy named Jack Sullivan at the university of Idaho. And at the time when I was applying to work in Jack's lab, he was writing a grant proposal for NSF to describe and hopefully fund the project that ultimately ended up forming the core of my dissertation research. And while I was a student in Jack's lab, we tried to get this project funded in a variety of ways and were never really successful, you know, and we were able to do the work anyway and cobble together money from smaller sources, but we couldn't get the big NSF grant that we were hoping to get. And several years later, we said, we should revisit this project because we still believe in this. And at the time, Jack had a postdoc in his lab named Anahi Esmondola, who was working on a different project. But Anahi said, hey, what you're really trying to do is make these predictions. So what if you just did some predictive modeling? And of course, Jack or myself really hadn't heard. This was like in 2014 or 13 or something. And this was new to us. But Anahi convinced us that this was a reasonable approach to take. And so we learned some about it. We worked with her and we put in another grant proposal based on this older idea, but with this new component in it. And that was the piece that we had been missing. And once we did that, it really resonated with people. Mm -hmm. And because I worked with Jack, I had sort of patterned my lab after his where people were free to sort of challenge existing ideas and come up with different solutions. So, you know, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But the important thing is you have to give people room to do that. And you don't, you know, one of the things I tell people is that, you know, everything I say isn't right and you you shouldn't believe me necessarily. And, you know, it's okay to challenge or to try to look at things from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, with anything in biology, you know, these types of approaches, as people see that they can be applied in a useful way, that makes people curious about them and they get creative and think about how they can apply them to different types of questions. Biology has changed so much in the last 15, 20 years because of genomics, because of computers, because of, you know, cloud computing and all of these technological tools that it's very challenging to sort of keep up with all of it. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, part of the reason why to the outsider, it might appear that things take a while to get incorporated is just that the landscape is entirely different than it was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, So what do you see next in terms of your group's application of ML? Yeah. So I guess one thing that people are excited about is using these techniques like, like neural network in particular to quantify things that we know are present, but that are hard to quantify. And so as part of the museum, 
one of our collections is called the Borer Lab of Bioacoustics. And it's a, it's a collection of a bunch of audio recordings of animals. So a lot of bird calls, for example. And when you listen to bird calls, even if it's a bird call from, you know, a same species, say a white-crowned sparrow, you can often detect differences in the individual calls that different individuals are making. You know, just like when you hear me talk and you talk, people can hear differences. But it's really hard to measure and quantify just how different those are. Interesting. And if you could measure and quantify that, then you can do things like ask questions about whether you know, factors related to the age or the gender or the sexual maturity of the individuals actually are influencing the differences in the bird songs that they're having, or whether it's just geographic distance or environmental distance or any of these other things that we know vary within species. And so I have a postdoc named Kaya Provost who actually wrote an NSF grant to develop neural networks to try to quantify these differences. You know, and she's in the early stages of this, so we don't know if it's going to work yet. But it's a potential application that would be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So kind of outside of the, well, I guess it is related to biodiversity, but in a slightly different way from some of the other examples you gave. I think so. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Brian, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us about what you're up to. Very cool stuff. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. So, and that's a good tip about the causal modeling. Yeah, I was just, uh, uh, you know, maybe we'll talk about this afterwards, but I was just thinking I should do a, uh, I would offer to kind of convene a conversation with you and my friend who does the causal modeling stuff and see if we can come up with any interesting directions in a a follow-up or something. Yeah, I would love that. I'll get some of my my people involved with it because, you know, they're the ones who probably have better ideas than I will. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely, we'll definitely do it. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thanks so much. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.